Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this week by Blue Apron. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined for this very special episode by my co-host, Jason Snell. Hi, Stephen. It is a special episode because yes. we have an interview with an interesting person. We do. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, your mind is going to be blown about dark matter and <laughs> the beginning true. of the universe. It's going to happen. It is true. Uh, but before we get to that, we have three little stories we wanted to talk about, and then we'll uh, we'll jump in. So uh, I noticed this video over at Ars Technica uh, a couple days ago, and it's about the, the Baron program, which we, like, this has inspired me to, to do an episode about this. It's the Soviet shuttle program. Yep. That didn't go anywhere. But there are two of the three orbiters still exist, and they're in this this uh, hangar out in the middle of nowhere. And this video, a couple guys, a group of guys, went, got into it, and spent, from the video, it looks like a couple of days inside filming it. They flew a drone inside, talk about it. They climb inside one of the orbiters. Uh, it's about 15 minutes, but I was totally captivated the whole time, and it's like there's tension in it because they keep almost getting caught by like security, which would have been, I would imagine, really bad. Uh, but it's a lot of fun to watch, and I think we should. I think we should talk about this program at some point because it's yeah. it's nuts. It's the I think we mentioned it in the past. It's just fascinating. They did fly like one mission of a like a drop test, basically. Yeah. Remote controlled. Nobody nobody piloting and on the on the the craft. Um, it looks remarkably like the space shuttle. And, um, and then, yeah, they, they, uh, they just have one of them at least is in this hangar that is kind of falling apart and it's all around the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I think it's fascinating that people broke in there. There have been photos in there before I've seen that there was a whole big photo spread of the, of, I think it was like, uh, old, old abandoned technology and it included some shots of Mm -hmm. this uh baron in its uh in its hangar but these guys like had a party in the hangar yeah <laughs> yes they did uh there there are two of them there the one that was part of the test actually was destroyed when another hangar collapsed on it but anyways we uh we'll talk about this at some point but you should go watch the video uh it's a lot of fun i sent it to uh, a couple other people and they were all not even space nerds just like sent to a guy who does some exploring photography stuff and he was like this looks crazy mm. but uh anyways uh so we'll move on from from that to talk about uh the lisa pathfinder this is a european space agency uh isa mission that laid the groundwork to observe gravitational waves in space and we've mentioned this before this is the the small spacecraft that uses two gold cubes. They're suspended in the spacecraft, and they use lasers to detect movement in those cubes. And the, those movements would be from gravitational waves. The LISA Pathfinder mission was really a proof of concept of the technology. And that mission actually ended today, as, as we're talking July 18th. But it has paved the way for a fuller, longer LISA mission that would be sometime in the 2030s. Again, this is a, a ESA project. NASA is uh, partnered potentially as a minor partner. Uh, NASA was going to be more involved but then pulled out due to funding. But this looks like it's going to be moving forward and would give us uh, another 
tool, another set of tools to look at gravitational waves, which we are discovering and learning more about over the last couple of years. Right. And we talked about the uh, the missions on uh, various instruments on Earth to mm-hmm. basically have gravitational telescopes, too, that are going on. So this is definitely a frontier of science. So Juno had a big week. You want to tell us about the red spot? Yeah, this week in Jupiter, um, they, they, Juno did its pass over the great red spot. You know, Juno is in this... Uh, what is it, 45-day, 50-day orbit now because they didn't want to put it in a tighter orbit and and risk uh, malfunction of its uh, engine. And so it does a pass, a close pass of Jupiter in a tight you know strip every so often, and that's that's what it's doing. And it, this pass was right over the great red spot, and this was last week. So we've got some great pictures, and the nice thing about the Juno cam, as we mentioned last time, is that um, it's there for us. It's there for us to get great pictures and for us to process the images and for us to pick what it should look at. And there are some great pictures coming out of the Great Red Spot with incredible detail, keeping in mind that this is a storm that's been raging for uh, at least hundreds of years we actually don't know it may have been the first time we could resolve surface features on jupiter it may have been seen so we don't actually have any i think hard evidence of it not ever being there Uh, but we've been observing jupiter for a few hundred years and it's been there so it's huge it's about the size of the earth basically um or it's a little bit wider than the earth it is a it is a giant storm in the upper atmosphere of Jupiter, actually towering over the clouds around it, too. There's some 3D that you don't necessarily see when you're, uh, or think about when you're thinking about Jupiter. And uh, Juno went right over the top, so we got a lot of detail that we've uh, we've not really had before, um, and that's great to see, because it's uh, one of the most interesting um, places in the solar system is this storm on Jupiter. Yeah, and because it's part of the Juno cam. You said people, some of the, the renders that we have linked to are actually done by citizen scientists. So there are people who pull these images down and, and tinker with them and then re-upload them. And, and like we talked about, this openly encouraged as part of this mission, getting lots of people involved. And it really is uh, some spectacular imagery. They were, they were floating around, I think, over the weekend when they, when they first uh, started surfacing. They're really breathtaking. So I would encourage you to go to go check those out. Yeah, more fun, uh, more fun Jupiter pictures. They are mind blowing. This huge planet, all that, yeah. all that, all that atmosphere, all that gas moving around, and yeah, in, 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 which is wild. Just place. yeah, just the storm being so much bigger than our planet. The scale is kind of hard to wrap your head around. Yeah. Yep. So, do you want to uh, tell us about our sponsor this week? Yeah, let's do it, and then we'll get into our. Uh, we'll introduce our guest. Uh, but but first, this episode of Liftoff brought to you by Blue Apron, the number one recipe delivery service. It's got the freshest ingredients. Their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone while also supporting a more sustainable food system. They've got high standards for their ingredients and they're building a community of home chefs like me, I suppose. Uh, For less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with fresh, high-quality ingredients that make delicious home-cooked meals in your kitchen 40 minutes or less. There's a step-by-step recipe card. Pre-portioned ingredients come in the box, so they ship the exact amount of each ingredient required. There's no food waste to speak of. 
they send us exactly what we need and no more. And the ingredients are fresh. Um, we've been doing this for a couple of years. I really enjoy cooking with Blue Apron. It has expanded our repertoire of um, of things we cook ourselves because you can save those recipe cards and buy the ingredients yourself and make those later plus Blue Apron ships you new stuff. So um, it, it really has dramatically changed what we eat for dinner and all for the better. You can cook meals like seared chicken and creamy pasta salad with summer squash and sweet peppers. Oh, we had that. Chili butter steaks with Parmesan potatoes and spinach. Many more. These are nice dishes with main courses and side dishes and really interesting flavors. So you don't have to add anything yourself. They've got you covered. There's no weekly commitment. Get deliveries when you want. Check on their website. See what they've got for you if you want to skip a week. It's not a problem. You can just skip a week and get the stuff for the next week, and you can even select which ones speak to you in a particularly given week. Check out this week's menu and get three meals free with your first purchase, including free shipping, by going to blueapron.com slash liftoff. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to make these meals at home with Blue Apron. Go to blueapron.com slash liftoff, and thank you to Blue Apron for supporting Liftoff. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. All right, Stephen, I think it's time for us to bring in our guest. Absolutely. Dr. Katie Back is a theoretical astrophysicist focusing on the early universe and physics using astronomical observations. She works at Melbourne University studying dark matter, black holes, and the moments just after the Big Bang. Katie, thank you so much for being on Liftoff. Thanks. It's good to be here. Uh, it's great to have. I love it when we have guests who have uh, have smart things to say about uh, about science and space and other things that are related because Stephen and I, you know, we're not... We're not scientists. We're not astrophysicists. We are just people who are excited about this stuff. Um, you know, so it's great to have you here. Um, the first question that is the question we always like to ask people who come on who have made a career of this, which is, how'd you get started? How'd you get started doing doing science and how'd you get started in astrophysics? So I, it's a, it was a fairly straightforward for, thing for me, which is not um, typical, I guess, but when I was a little kid, I wanted to know how everything worked, and that extended to the universe, and uh, so I just kind of kept going with that. I, I, I remember when I was very young, I found out about Stephen Hawking and A Brief History of Time and black holes and the Big Bang and, you know, time travel and warped space time and all of that stuff, and that sounded awesome to me. And I found out that Stephen Hawking was called a cosmologist, and so I decided I should be a cosmologist. Um, and that's kind of what I did. So I... I you know, studied physics in college and then um, went on to a PhD in astrophysics. And the, the stuff I study is cosmology, which is the study of the universe on the largest scales, the Big Bang, um, the early universe, and, you know, what the universe is made of, how it might end, all of that. So you were one of these people who sort of knew you didn't have a weird d digressive path to get where you wanted to go. You were interested in this stuff as a, as a child and, and said, I'm yeah. going to do this. And then you did it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've, I've kind of always had that sort of, you know, um, very focused passion on uh, for physics that that never really diverged. There was there was a short time in in college where I got really excited about neuroscience, um, but uh, but not enough to change uh, careers. So, yeah, it's it's just been it's I've been lucky that um, you know I've been in a situation where I've been able to pursue it and it's worked out pretty well. In reading your bio in preparation, you call yourself a theoretical astrophysicist. And I was wondering what the theoretical yeah. means. Um, so it means I don't do anything with data and I, I don't uh, I don't use telescopes. Um, 
except, you know, the little one on my balcony when I want to see the moons of Jupiter or something. Um, and I don't uh, do experiments. So I, I pretty much, um, I pretty much, well, I work in the sort of this is sort of in between space, in between the experiments and the theory, really, because I'm not a model builder, so I don't um, come up with new theories of of cosmology or anything like that. But what I do is um, I look at what the what the really interesting theories are in fundamental physics right now, and then what the telescopes and colliders and all of the experimental and observational things could do, and then I try and find ways to connect those um, those two. Region. So I try and find, you know, interesting theories we can test with new observations. Uh, so in some ways you could call me a phenomenologist, um, but it's theoretical in the sense that um, I'm not, you know, collecting data. I'm not analyzing data. Um, I'm really working in the theoretical space. You've mentioned cosmology a couple of times, and I, I wanted to ask you about that. In, in, in thinking of the early moments, the earliest moments in the universe, um, what is it? And first off, I think it's kind of amazing that we are able to observe the universe and wind and wind the clock back and get an idea of what happened in the very first moments of the universe. What is it that we understand and what are the big gaps in our knowledge of what happened at the very beginning of the universe? Well, it's it's kind of amazing. We have really good understanding of, um, you know, the first few microseconds, uh, basically, like, we can get to, I don't remember what the numbers are exactly, but uh, something like a microsecond after the Big Bang, like, or after the beginning of everything, whatever that is, like, we have a pretty good understanding. And one of the reasons that we have a good understanding there is that we can actually recreate some of the conditions of the very, very early universe by using colliders and um, just making very high energy collisions. And we can get to the kinds of energies um, that the universe, the sort of primordial, uh, you know, quark gluon plasma and all this this very early, um, you know, pre-particle soup we can we can recreate those conditions in the lab, but um, but there there's there are some things that we don't understand when you get a little bit earlier. So uh, the the current um, most accepted theory is that there was this period of inflation at the very early universe. So the universe begins and then somehow starts um, starts expanding very very quickly, sort of exponentially for a period of time, and then that expansion slows down, and then you have the sort of regular Big Bang kind of expansion where you just have, um, you know, the universe is expanding very quickly, but not um, in this kind of exponential way. Um, And that inflationary period, if it happened, was at something like 10 to the minus 35 seconds, so a very, very tiny fraction of a second. We don't know for sure if that did happen. We don't know how it started, uh, why it ended um, what set it off or whatever might have happened before that. So that part is um, kind of a mystery. And the the observational data we have seems consistent with the idea that, that something like that happened, but we, we don't have like direct proof and we can't directly probe that right now. And there's also the question of, you know, that that whole how did it get started thing is is still a really big um, unknown. So that's part that's a thing we don't know. Another thing that that we don't understand in kind of a different way is is the period between when the when the first light was created. So um, we can we can we can look back at the sort of afterglow of the Big Bang. It's called the cosmic microwave background, and it's 
it's this radiation that's left over from when the universe was in this sort of hot plasma state. We can see that radiation, so we can actually see the universe as it was when it was in this sort of giant cosmic fireball. Um, and then once that cooled down, once the radiation cooled down, there's this period uh, called the Dark Ages, the Cosmic Dark Ages, where the universe was basically just full of neutral hydrogen gas um, and a little bit of other things. And for, you know, um, hundreds of millions of years, not a whole lot was happening. Um, and then eventually the first stars were forming and um, and the, the galaxies were forming and so on. So, so there's a period before, between like 380,000 years and a billion years or so where we, we don't know a whole lot about how the first structures got started because we can't directly see them. Um, we can't directly see what was going on there because there wasn't a whole lot of stuff putting out light and because it's it's really hard to see through that neutral, neutral hydrogen with regular light and and it gets a little bit complicated. But so there's, there's that cosmic dark ages, which is um, dark because there wasn't a lot of light, but also <laughs> because uh, we don't really know what's happening. I mean, physicists use the term dark in a lot of different ways, um, which I'm sure we'll discuss later. But um, <laughs> In that case, it's it's uh, it was literally dark. <laughs> so that, that's a case where we can wind the co- clock back and have an idea that this is mu- this must be what was going on, but we don't have necessarily any evidence of it because we we it, it's not a period that where there were shining things that we might be able to see later. So we just have to make some assumptions. Is that? Yeah, sort of. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not that it's completely inaccessible to observation. It's just that we haven't got there yet, really. So, I mean, we can see we can see the the cosmic ray background as sort of a, a sort of you know um, I don't know background light, and and then between us and that background light, in terms of time and in terms of distance, because time and distance are get to be the same thing when right. you're thinking about cosmological terms. Um, there's this this period of time where, where nothing is shining, but there are new uh, telescopes being built now, um, that uh, radio telescopes that, that should be able to see some radio signatures from that time, or at least hmm. get closer to that time. Um, and some, there's the Square Kilometer Array, which is a, an array of radio telescopes being built um, in Australia and Southern Africa. Um, and that, that should give us uh, a bit more of a hint of what was going on in the Dark Ages. Um, it's, it won't get quite deep into the Dark Ages. It'll get sort of to the edge. But um, future telescopes might be able to tell us even more about that. So w- it's not completely inaccessible, but it's very, very hard uh, to, to do those observations. So I'm going to, since you opened the door to the, I'm not going to call it a pun, but the, the word dark being used in different <laughs> yeah. ways. Uh, a lot yeah. of your uh, work has been focused on dark matter. And I've read a bunch about it, and I'm not sure that I have any real understanding. So what uh, what is dark matter? What are you looking at here? And, and why is it important? Yeah, so so dark matter is, is called dark not because it's dark, but because we don't know what it is and can't see it, um, which is a different sense of dark. Uh, so, so it really should be called invisible matter. Um, when we think of things that are dark, we think of things that are absorbing light um, or that look black. And and dark matter definitely doesn't do that. Um, it it's so dark matter is a kind of matter. It, it has mass, um, and it's very very abundant in the universe. 
but it seems to not um, absorb light or reflect light or emit light. Um, and the way the way that seems to work is that it just doesn't deal with electromagnetism at all. So, um, you know, light is electromagnetic waves. Uh, dark matter seems to completely ignore those. Um, so light passes right through dark matter. But another thing that electromagnetism does is it allows for, you know, like collisions between things. So like if you if you touch uh, the table, you know, it's the electrons in your hand pushing against the electrons in the table that allow you to feel that, that make that table seem solid. And since dark matter doesn't seem to do electromagnetism, it can pass right through solid things um, without noticing, basically. Um, so it seems to be this kind of stuff that's that doesn't deal with light, doesn't do collisions, can pass right through all other matter, including itself, apparently. Um, but uh, but it does have gravity. And so the way that we know it's there is by how it interacts gravitationally with other objects. Um, so with galaxies and stars and, and clusters of galaxies and things like that. So the evidence that dark matter is out there um, is stuff like the way that galaxies rotate, um, you know, stars move around the centers of galaxies uh, in this sort of disk pattern for spiral galaxies, and the stars on the outside of these disks are going so fast that if there wasn't extra matter holding them in, they should be flying off into space. That was one of the first arguments for dark matter existing. There could be other explanations for that, but but dark matter is a is a uh, a very good explanation for that. But then there are other things that also suggest that it's there. Um, things like gravitational lensing, where um, anything that has mass bends space around it, and we can see the distortions of very distant galaxies um, by the gravitational lensing of more nearby ones, and we see evidence for much more matter than the stuff that shines the the stars and the gas and things like that. So everywhere we look, there's much more matter than, um, than we can see, and uh, current estimates are that dark matter is something like 85% of the matter in the universe, so it's a really significant component, and it seems to be kind of what underlies all of the um, all of the structure in the universe. So if you if you were to uh, visualize all of the mass in the universe on the very largest scales, you'd see this kind of cosmic web of clusters and filaments and big voids, and that cosmic web would be mostly dark matter with little galaxies sort of sprinkled on top. So it's called dark matter. We know that dark is uh, more metaphorical. It, not not mm-hmm. actual. It, it's yeah. it doesn't react with electromagnetism. Is it, it so? We, but we call it matter. Is it matter? Um, it, how do we know that? Or would we consider it matter? Or is that even just a useful fra- part of the phrase because it's this non-interactive except gravitationally something? Well, so we call it matter because it has mass. Okay. Um, it does gravity. It does, if that's the the way that it inter- interacts with things. I've seen definitions of matter that say has mass and takes up space. It's not clear that dark matter takes up space in the sense that you know if you if you build a box around it, it goes right through the box. You know, it's not. Um, huh. uh, it does it, it, it because it doesn't interact with stuff very easily. Then it it can pass right. It's you know probably passing right through this room and the earth and everything right now. Um, but it, it does seem to have. You know, I mean, it does have gravitational um, effects. So, 
everything that we know about dark matter, we know because of its gravity. Um, and we there are hypotheses that it does have other um, impacts, other sort of particle physics as well. So the the leading idea is that is that it interacts with the weak nuclear force. Um, and so that means that very, very rarely there would be a um, an interaction between dark matter, a dark matter particle, and a regular matter particle, or another dark matter particle um, that would involve some kind of annihilation event or collision or something like that. Um, and that would be via the weak force, and it would be a very, very um, low cross section, like very, very rare interaction. Um, so we're looking for signs of that, but so far there's nothing really compelling um, that that tells us that we definitely have seen that. So the only thing we can really say is that it has gravity. That was going to be my follow-up too, which is it sounds like this is a... Obviously we can see its gravitational effects and therefore there's a high confidence that this is something. But how yeah. do we as creatures who interact with the, the universe in large part by electromagnetism, how do we, mm. how does that become accessible to us? How do we measure, how do we find some way of, of, of learning more about this thing? Cause it does seem sort of locked away in, in a, some sort of existence that we, that's hard for us to even fathom. Yeah, it's, it's a really, it's a hard problem. Um, but there are, there are a few different ways that we can, uh, that we can approach it that, that can tell us more about what dark matter is. I mean, the the most obvious thing is we can we can find out a lot about what it's not. <laughs> okay, so the re the ways that we find out about what it's not are, um, you know, we can uh, we can look at, for example, collisions between clusters of galaxies, and see that the dark matter is passing right through that collision, um, and we see that by looking at the the gravitational distortion, the gravitational lensing effect, um, and the fact that the dark matter is passing through that uh, collision without stopping in the middle. Um, tells us it gives us some some limits on like you know it, it can't be very sticky it can't have very strong interactions with itself so we can we can learn stuff like that we can look at the shapes of um, of clusters of dark matter so the so for example our galaxy is this sort of disk galaxy a spiral galaxy but it's embedded in a in a we call it a halo of dark matter which is basically just a clump of dark matter that's sort of vaguely spherical shaped. And that tells us that dark matter doesn't do the kind of interaction that regular matter does that makes regular matter go into disks. Dark matter doesn't do disks, uh, at least not in any measurable way. So dark matter tends to be fluffier and more diffuse um, in some ways than regular matter. It doesn't form compact objects uh, as far as we can tell. So, so that tells us something about the interactions between dark matter particles and just that they must be very weak. So we learn a lot about it that way in the sense of, you know, finding out what it's not. Um, but then we also have sort of three avenues for trying to detect what the dark matter particle actually is. And all of these do uh, do rely on dark matter having some kind of interaction with uh, itself or other matter via the weak force or, or you know, something like that. So one of them is that um, we can try and we can try and get dark matter. We can try and detect the dark matter particle directly with uh, detectors. <laughs> the way this works is you take a basically a, a box of some kind of um, some kind of material um, where you monitor that material very very carefully, and you put this box 
deep underground um, in a mine or something like that to protect it from cosmic rays and, and other particles that could come down and, and mess with the stuff in your detector. And you wait for a dark matter particle to come through and very, very rarely, once in a while, it should bump into one of the nuclei in your detector. And so if you're watching carefully enough, you should see that nucleus sort of shift to the side a little bit. Um, and if you've shielded your experiment really, really well, then there are very few things that could make that happen. Um, so you're, you're looking for something that goes about bump in the night, basically. And um, so that's called direct detection. And there are a number of detectors all over the world looking for signatures of dark matter coming in and bumping something in their detector. That sounds like it's a it's an interesting interaction between the theorists and the people who are measuring, right? Because it's the theorists who, mm. who, who lay some groundwork and say, we think maybe the weak nuclear force is what's going on here. And that allows somebody mm-hmm. to build an instrument to try and find out if there's a collision of, or an interaction yeah. based on the weak nuclear force. And they, they wouldn't just make that up. There's got to be some theoretical groundwork that means this might be the case. So let's test it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that comes from a few different places. Um, there there are a few different sort of particle theory uh, models for dark matter. Um, one of them comes from the theory of supersymmetry, which is this sort of extension of the standard model of particle physics that would involve a whole bunch of new particles. And one of the new particles that it would would give you is uh, is something called a neutralino, which would have the properties of dark matter, would interact with the nucle- the weak nuclear force, and would be you know invisible to us. Um, Supersymmetry is a little rough right now because there there should have been um, we should have seen something with the Large Hadron Collider right. if supersymmetry was there and we haven't seen that so the the kinds of supersymmetry that are not ruled out yet are are getting smaller um, but you know that's that's one place you get a model for dark matter and there are other. There are other models for dark matter that, that suggest that this weak nuclear force interaction really should be happening. Um, but uh, so far, you know, we're still in the in the situation of trying to trying to test a bunch of different models and trying to get some evidence and, and rule stuff out. So one of the one of the other things that neutralinos do if they are the dark matter is that um, I mean, if they exist and if, and if they are the dark matter, um, is that they can be they can do this thing where they're sort of their own antiparticle. And so if you put two of them together in a very exact collision, they annihilate with each other. So what that means is that if dark matter is made of this self-annihilating stuff, um, then when you have a strong enough concentration of it somewhere in the universe, you should see it creating radiation. And so this suggests that like, if you have a big clump of dark matter, then it should give off high energy particles or or gamma rays or something like that, um, that you would be able to detect uh, with, you know, a gamma ray detector or a cosmic ray detector or something like that. So there are experiments that, that look for that signature and they look for it in the center of the galaxy where there's a lot of dark matter or in uh, nearby dwarf galaxies that tend to have more dark matter than stars in terms of the mass um, by a larger degree than usual. Um, or just sort of in general space, there's a lot of dark matter. And so there should be sort of a background of this particle creation if this is happening. So that's called indirect detection. And that's the sort of second way to look for dark matter is to try to to see those signatures of dark matter annihilating with itself in space. Or you can also look for like um, decaying dark matter. There are a number of different ways that dark matter might produce 
some kind of detectable particle in large concentrations in space. So that's that's kind of the second way to look for it. And then the third way is if dark matter can do this thing where it interacts with itself and creates regular matter, then it kind of makes sense that if you take regular matter and collide it together fast enough, you should be able to create dark matter. And that's what the Large Hadron Collider is trying to do. Um, is it's well, it's it's doing a lot of different things by colliding protons together. But one of the hopes is that every once in a while it might create a dark matter, a pair of dark matter particles, um, in one of these collisions. And then the way that you would find that is that the detector can't see the dark matter. So when you have that collision and you count up all the debris, there should be something missing, and that might be the dark matter. So um, so that's another experiment that's being done, and that's a sort of collider production experiment. And so far that's been, uh, we haven't seen anything conclusive from that either. So it's kind of, at the moment, it's, it's a bit of a, um, an interesting time where the there have been a number of direct detection experiments, and some of them have seen things that look like they could be signals, um, but they don't really agree with each other, and we're not really sure what's going on with the things that look like they might be signals. And then there's these indirect detection experiments. There have been a bunch of things where we've seen like extra gamma rays in the galactic center or something like that, and there have been a number of papers written saying maybe that's the dark matter. And then usually what happens is that when the when that signal is studied more carefully, it turns out that it's also consistent with being pulsars or something like that, some other kind of um, weird object in space that makes high energy particles. So it's a little confusing at the moment. We're not really sure uh, what's going on in terms of detections that have already been made, whether they're real or not. And um, it's not really clear where things are going in terms of um, the theory, because the sort of most, the simplest neutralino kind of uh, model doesn't seem to be showing up. And so there's there's a lot of a lot of discussion about sort of what's next for dark matter. Where should we go next to look for new and interesting and more exotic particles than what the, the sort of most appealing theory seems to say? So experiments are ongoing. Uh, theories are being worked on. How does this stuff affect our understanding of the universe? There are a couple of different things. If we were to detect the dark matter particle and it were consistent with one of these more complicated theories, then that would tell us a lot about kind of how particle physics works. Because um, right now we have this standard model of particle physics, which is just a, a kind of formulation of how all the particles fit together and what all their masses and interactions are. And the standard model uh, works fantastically well in terms of experiments. So we've, we've uh, seen a lot of, um, we've seen a lot of signatures uh, in colliders and things like that that are just perfectly consistent with what the standard model predicts. And in fact, the Higgs boson was like the last piece of the standard model. And we detected that in 2012. And that really fits, you know, fits the model and everything looks great in terms of the standard model. But the standard model doesn't include anything that could be the dark matter. And so there has to be something else. There has to be some other kind of particle theory that's that's more complete. And there's other reasons that 
the dark, the standard model can't be everything. I mean, it doesn't work very well with general relativity, for example, and you know, so that's why people talk about things like quantum gravity and string theory. So there's there's got to be more out there and one of the hopes with dark matter is that if we can find the dark matter particle and characterize it, then we know which direction to go with these more complete particle theories. So if we did see something like a neutralino, that would suggest that supersymmetry is the way to go. And then, you know, we have sort of a clue about these these bigger, more complete particle theories. Um, it, or if, for example, if dark matter were something like an axion, which is a different, um, a different kind of dark matter particle um, that's been hypothesized but hasn't been seen, that would tell us something else about the the underlying particle theory. So, it's we're kind of dark matter is one of these things that that is is a a good a good direction to go in terms of learning something about particle physics that at the moment is very hard to get out of the data from particle physics experiments per se. So the Large Hadron Collider has not been showing us, you know, new, exciting, next next direction kind of things. There have been a few anomalies that have been interesting. Some have gone away, some haven't. Um, and there are a couple of other particle experiments that are showing interesting things, but there hasn't been a sort of very clear signpost of this is where the theory should go next. But if we found the dark matter and understood what that was, then that would be a really good indication of where our particle physics models are incomplete and how to go about sort of completing them. So, so that's that's one of the bigger um, things that we could get out of this if we if we knew what dark matter was. And also just if we understood what dark matter was and how it interacted with regular matter and with itself, then that would tell us a lot about the formation of structure in the universe, you know, how we get stars and galaxies and how the early universe evolved um, from the beginning onward. So there's there's a lot of lot we can get if we just if we just if we just understand this one thing. And maybe it's not just one kind of particle, maybe it's uh, a whole family of different kinds of particles, but it is most of the matter in the universe. So um, figuring out what it is would help an awful lot um, in understanding the universe um, and particle physics and fundamental physics in every sense better. Looping back to cosmology, are there cosmological implications that come with knowing what dark matter is versus not? Or is it not that important when it comes to thinking about how the universe started? Um in terms of how the universe started, um, yeah, th- that's kind of hard to say. There are dark matter models that could be connected to things to do with inflation, um, but the the more important cosmological implications, most likely for dark matter particles, would be something related to how structure forms. So the formation of the first stars and galaxies, for example, and that's that's kind of where my research is is sitting at the moment. Is that I'm looking at how the first stars and galaxies would be affected if dark matter were something that annihilates and creates, you know, extra energy particles uh, from these these very early clumps of matter that host the first stars and galaxies. So that could have really interesting implications for what we will see with these new telescopes when we start to be able to get into like the dark ages and the first stars and galaxies. 
So are there, I assume there are because there are flat earth people. Are there dark matter deniers? And what would you say to somebody who says, I don't know, this sounds like it's all made up and it doesn't exist. What's the, what's the quickest way of saying, no, this is important and it is real? Yeah, so I actually, um, I have a frequently asked questions uh, bit in my webpage. And, and one of the frequently asked questions is, oh, isn't dark matter just like a fudge factor? And, you know, you just put that in there to fix the math and it's not really there. It's just, you know, an illusion or something. Um, and when I give public talks, that's that's the most common question I get. And um, and the uh, and and when I you know when I meet someone at a party and I say I work on dark matter, they're like, oh, I don't think dark matter is real. I think it's all made up. And they uh, they always give this like little wink, you know, like like they're in on the secret, you oh, know, boy. and it's their idea. Um, so everybody thinks that this is a very this is a very you know edgy kind of thing to say. And there there are there are theories uh, out there. There are are models that. Um, that try to explain things like the rotation of galaxies without dark matter. Um, and you can you can do pretty well with that if you change how gravity works, if you if you alter the laws of gravity um, so that they act differently on different scales, you can get um, a good agreement with uh, the rotation of galaxies, for example. The place where that becomes less, easy the place where that those those kinds of theories agree less is when you get to the larger scales of things like gravitational lensing things like the patterns in the cosmic microwave background that tell us about the distribution of matter in the early universe that stuff just doesn't fit very well if with these these uh, alterations of gravity as a replacement for dark matter in general you really do need dark matter to fit all of the observations uh, it, which is not to say that that there can't be some new theory out there that alters gravity and maybe has some other things that happen that also could explain these observations. But what what we do see is that taken together, the observations on all of the scales that we have, the the thing that fits the data best is the idea that there's a new kind of particle that doesn't interact with electromagnetism, might interact with the weak force, and that is much more abundant than regular matter. And that just seems to fit the data much better at the moment. There are some places where there are weird uh, observations that that uh, people often bring up as challenges to the dark matter uh, model, but they're on the kinds of scales where other interesting physics and astrophysics could be messing with it too, uh, and you don't really need to get rid of dark matter uh, to, to solve those problems, at least from, from my understanding of the literature and all of the stuff I've seen. There are other explanations for the little anomalies that don't involve getting rid of dark matter because dark matter works so well for the large-scale um, problems and just seems to be the best big picture we have. So... You know, in in science, what we do all the time is we have some model and we look at the data. We have some other model and we we hold on to the model that fits the data best. And at the moment, dark matter is the model that fits the data best. And it's not to say that, you know, maybe somehow in the future somebody will find another model that looks exactly like a new particle in every possible way, except at some very special case where it reveals itself to be something else you know that's that kind of model could happen um but at the moment you know just a new particle that has these properties of not interacting with light uh does seem to be the best bet we have 
if people want to have been have been captured by your discussion of dark matter here, are there do you have any recommendations for further reading? I know I've read a lot of of stuff. I know there's a lot out there in terms of books for for lay people, kind of explaining physics and and cosmology. Do you have any any favorites? There's uh, there are some really great books out there. Um, you know, uh, some of my friends have, have written really awesome things. Uh, so Catherine Fries, uh, who's another dark matter um, theorist, uh, wrote a book recently all about dark matter called uh, The Cosmic Cocktail, uh, which got very, very good reviews. And um, she's a friend of mine. That's a very that's a very good book. I read that uh, a couple months ago. That was very good. Yeah. So um, and she's she's really cool. She's a friend of mine. So uh, definitely look into that. Um, and uh, uh, Sean Carroll wrote a book called The Big Picture, which goes into all of the all of the cosmological ideas. Um, so I would definitely recommend that as well. I tend to read books about spaceships uh, because me too. Fair, <laughs> because fair. I th- because I think about I think about uh, dark matter all the time, and uh, sometimes I just want to read about spaceships. But uh, but there are very good books that you should check out. All right. Well, I think that's all of our questions for now, although sometime I would love to have you back and and we can talk about some other stuff because there's so much more in the universe to talk about. Yeah, yeah, we could talk about dark energy even. Boy. Which is a whole whole other thing. Let let people's heads stop spinning a little (laughs) bit about dark matter and then we'll get to dark energy. Okay, sounds good. Well, Katie, thank you so much for being on Liftoff. Thanks, it was really fun. So Jason, I think that does it for this fortnight. I think so. That, uh, I think we've done... With the help of Katie Mack, we've done all we need to do for this episode of Liftoff. It uh, it feels like a a good one. Episode fifty one is finished. If you yeah, want to find, it's full of dark matter, but the dark matter doesn't show up in your podcast player as time. <laughs> That's true. Uh, if it does show up in your podcast player, maybe let uh, Doctor Mack know. Yeah, <laughs> she'd want to know. If you want to find uh, links for all the stuff we talked about this week, you can do so on our website relay.fm slash liftoff slash 51 you can get in touch with us there by email or of course on twitter the show is at liftoff podcast jason is there as j snell j-s-n-e-l-l and you can find me on twitter as i-s-m-h until our next fortnight jason say goodbye goodbye everybody adios adios